When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. I hope you had a great holiday break. My name is Jessica Kale, and I had way too much fun working on this week's episode. You know me, because I'm a serious scholar, I like to ask the important questions. Who sent the first tit pick? How did Benedict Arnold win over a stone-cold fox like Peggy Shippen? Were friends with benefits a thing back in the 18th century? And crucially, what was really going on between Alexander Hamilton and his sister-in-law, Angelica? To answer these hard questions, I had to consult the expert. Our guest this week is Dr. Cassandra Good, author of Founding Friendships, Friendships Between Men and Women in the Early American Republic. This book is a really fascinating social history covering a subject that's typically overlooked or underplayed in favor of marriages or high-profile affairs. Still, looking at these friendships can tell us a lot about how people thought and related to one another in the 18th century, and I'm pleased to report that, once again, the history is not as buttoned up as you might imagine. We do talk about these friendships, but because I'm me, and sexy is right there in the title, I had to make it weird. So our talk about friends with benefits comes with some not-so-safe-for-work visual aids. So if you'd like to follow along at home, you can find those on our Instagram at DirtySexyHistory. Have fun. All right, everybody. Our guest today is Cassandra Good, author of Founding Friendships. Friendships Between Men and Women in the Early American Republic. Cassandra, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this book was so fascinating, and I've been so excited to talk to you about it. So in your book, Founding Friendships, you're looking at the relationships between men and women during the early years of the American Republic. How common were friendships between men and women at this time? Well, I first just want to classify sort of the kind of men and women I'm looking at, which is mostly elite white men and women, because those are the people I was able to find good evidence for on this. I keep hoping that somebody figures out a way to get at uh, people who didn't leave behind maybe letters and diaries. Um, There were several things I tried that ended up being dead ends to get to those kind of people. But among the people I looked at, and when I say elite you know, we didn't have a standard middle class at that point, but we're talking about sort of middling classes, the way we talk about it, and wealthy people who are literate um, and who are actually at this point, even women getting educated. Among that group of people, these friendships are very common. And even if you just think of the founding fathers, all of these men had friendships with women that I've been able to document. Well, that's fantastic. So for context, you know, this is sort of the the Enlightenment period. 
how did Enlightenment ideals influence these friendships? So when we think about Enlightenment ideals in America, those get translated in a couple of ways. First of all, into what we often call, and this is the case in England too, this culture of sensibility, this idea of valuing deep feeling and emotional connections. This is also the period of the American French revolutions, the overthrow of authority. And part of that also ends up being changes in ideas about how relationships should work. Not just how politics should work, but relationships are supposed to be more egalitarian, tending towards equality, if not fully equal. Um, and then friendship also becomes key to political life in this ideology, that if you're going to have rule by the people, then you have to have close ties among people. The other thing is in America, there's this set of ideas about politics that we call republicanism with a small r, so not related to the Republican Party, but more related to the ancient Roman Republic. And some of it is sort of enlightenment ideals. Some of it is British philosophy from actually the 1600s. Some of it is looking back to classical sources to say that to have a republic, a government by the people, um, you need to have virtuous people and you need to have free people. And so these sort of qualities of the ideal Republican citizen, when we think of um, those qualities, virtue, right, freedom, then also the ability to choose and also equality. And all of those values end up being the values epitomized by these friendships between men and women. And I argue that in fact, these friendships between men and women best capture those ideals out of any relationship between a man and a woman at this time. Because pretty much any other male-female relationship, even if you're siblings, there's a hierarchy. Um, and if it's a family relationship, you don't have the choice or freedom to leave the relationship, right? And of course, marriage too. As much as we're getting into a period at this time of what we call companionate marriage, where you're supposed to marry somebody who's a friend, uh, and that you love, still the woman's legal identity is erased. The man has total legal power over the woman. So again, that's not a relationship of equality. So these friendships are quite different in that respect and thus have this sort of political importance in that way. Right, absolutely. Now, these days, I know you still find, you know, married people or people in long-term relationships who are uncomfortable with their partners having friends of the opposite sex, or at least the sex that they're interested in. So did marriage complicate these friendships, or was it more accepted that people were going to have friends of their own? And I think it's interesting that you're mentioning the sex that they're interested in, right? Because part of our assumption today about men and women can't be friends, the whole when Harry met Sally, for people who know that movie, that sort of thesis, which really comes up in a lot of movies and novels today, that's based on the idea that both the man and the woman are straight. Mm -hmm. And both today and in the past, that wasn't always the case. And so I sort of question people who say men and women can't be friends say, well, what about if one of those people is not straight? Or what about mm -hmm. two lesbian women? And so a lot of this is bound up in our ideas about sexuality and the inevitability of attraction between a man and a woman, which even if they're both straight, it's not inevitable that they're going to be attracted. No way. But to go back to the marriage question, I think 
in some ways, marriage makes these relationships safer because when somebody is married, they can incorporate their spouse into the relationship, into the friendship. And I think you see this today where if a man and woman are friends, often if one or both of them are married, their spouses are going to be with them when they get dinner together or something. Uh, and at the time, you know, you'd write a letter and you'd make sure to refer to your spouse, especially as a woman, the husband really had to be incorporated as a man, the wife didn't necessarily have to, but most men did. Mm -hmm. The case where being unmarried would be better actually in turn, or easier to be friends uh, for a woman is if she's widowed. At that point, she's seen as sort of not a sexual being anymore. And so you see that widowed women are able to have close male friends and there doesn't seem to be a lot of questioning of it. On the other hand, young single women are at this huge risk because if there is any chance that they have engaged in premarital sex, it ruins their chances to get married. Not the case for men, but it is the case for women. So there's sort of different risk levels that circulate around age and marital status, I would say. Right. And you have to be so careful how you frame these things. Um, so did people often assume the worst if people were just friends? I think often, yes. And that's why I have a whole chapter in the book about how people framed these relationships mm -hmm. and made sure to incorporate a third party often, whether that was a spouse, another member of the family. Uh, if they're in a religious community, God could be the third party, uh, another group of friends that you're part of. Because there was an assumption at this point, a man and a woman who are alone together, something improper is happening. And so even taking a walk together, mm -hmm. just the two of you could be seen as a little bit risky. And there's a woman, Margaret Baird Smith, who gets flack from an older woman because she's going on a walk with a guy mm -hmm. and they're both young and unmarried. And she's saying to her fiance in a letter, this is nuts, but- you know, people had to be aware of those assumptions that everybody around them is making. Yeah. Gosh, it's so tragic. You think about like how many friendships, you know, weren't really allowed to to take off, you know, because people would make or assume the worst, you know, just because of that potential being there. Yeah. And also the fact there were people who talked about the fact that for a woman to be friends with a man, if she's married, not just does the husband have to be incorporated, he basically has the right to approve or disapprove of that relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are people who say, including men, this is wrong, um, that men could have this kind of control over women. I don't really see examples, and they're probably not ending up getting recorded, where men are saying, no, you can't be friends with them. You more see women saying, my husband knows about this, this is okay. Um, or just saying, isn't it unfair? That this has to be this way. Did women do the same thing? Would, would they forbid their husbands from being friends with certain women, maybe women who didn't have the best reputation or women who they thought were, I don't know, too attractive? <laughs> women didn't have any official sort of leverage to do that. There's a mm -hmm. sense in which men have more control over women. I'm sure that there were times though, where in a marriage, a woman said, you know, if they're in a particularly egalitarian marriage, if she felt like she could say to the man, you know, I don't want you spending time with this woman. But I think that's not something that would have been expected at the time or part of the way that sort of hierarchy within marriage was supposed to work. 
Okay. Yeah. Men were kind of more allowed to do what they wanted. <laughs> right. Yeah. And even Ben Franklin comments on this to a female friend, you know, you know, you as women have to get your spouse's permission, but like we, as men, we can kind of do what we want on this. Man must be nice. <laughs> oh my goodness. So one of the people who stood out to me was, uh, Sarah Goodridge. So she was really fascinating. What can you tell us about her? Sarah Goodridge is famous today for having been a very skilled miniature portrait painter. And she's actually a self-taught artist. She was born in 1788 in Massachusetts in a fairly poor family. She ends up moving as a teenager to Boston to live with a sister and brother-in-law and ends up opening her own studio painting miniatures, which we think of, oh, miniatures are small, so they must not have been expensive. In fact, they could be just as expensive as a full-sized portrait. And she gets a stroke of luck when Gilbert Stewart ends up um, sort of taking her on and helping mentor her. This is Gilbert Stewart, the famous portrait painter, who he doesn't do miniatures. He does full-size paintings, but he helps support her. And she becomes a very prolific artist. She does up to three miniatures a week, which that's actually a lot. These are very intricate watercolor on ivory paintings. She's painting a lot of prominent people. Uh, and she's able to be quite financially successful, even though she never marries, which is a feat for a woman in this time period. That's incredible. And and she was independent and she got to, you know, kind of make her own decisions about her friendships. And speaking of which, her relationship with Daniel Webster was particularly interesting. So how did all of that play out? So she met him in Boston. Daniel Webster was from Massachusetts. So they meet in Boston, probably because he's coming in to sit for a portrait for her. He sits for her 12 times. And when you do a sitting with somebody, you know, depending on how long that sitting is, you have time to talk, to become close. That's probably how they became friends. He was married when they met. And it's hard to know a lot about their relationship because we don't have a lot of correspondence surviving from it. Mm -hmm. There's just about 40 short notes that Webster sent to Goodridge between 1827, which is after they had met several years later, uh, through 1851. And they're mostly about finances. She's lending him money, interestingly. I mean, she's this is this famous political figure. She's well enough off that she's lending him money. The openings of those letters, though, do hint that that relationship gets closer over time. So it evolves from, you know, we tend to just open a letter, dear so-and-so. Back then, there's sort of different formulas and rituals of opening a letter that can tell us how close people are. So he starts out with madam and then dear madam. So like madam is, this is somebody I don't really know well. Dear madam, okay, maybe I, I know this person. Then dear Miss G, and finally my dear good friend. So you can see that evolution in their relationship where they clearly become much closer over time. Mm -hmm. It definitely warms up. And they were friends for decades. Right, right. Mm, but things clearly change uh, at a certain stage and actually fairly early in that progression of the openings of the letters. Um, in 1828, when Daniel's wife dies, soon after Sarah goes down to visit him in DC and gives him this gift uh, yeah. that was an unusual portrait. <laughs> 
Okay. Yes, indeed. So, uh, of course, you mentioned the the timing there. His his wife had just passed away, and it it seems that Sarah has decided to shoot her shot. Right. So she sends him or takes him a portrait, uh, and this is beauty revealed. So, what is this portrait? This is a miniature unlike any other miniature that had existed before. Uh, it is a photographic quality portrait of her breasts. Yes. And this is at a time where portraits of nude women do not appear in America overall. There is one, and I'll mention in a minute because I do think it influenced her. But the only tradition of miniatures with parts of bodies at this point is these eye portraits, mm -hmm. where it would just be somebody's eye that you would give to a lover. And it's important to know that miniatures in general only go to lovers or close family. These are not something that male, female friends usually exchange. It's too intimate. The way you interact with a miniature, because of how small it is, we're talking, you know, maybe two inches across. Um, you're holding it up close to your face to inspect it. You might be wearing it in a locket or wearing it in a pocket over your heart. So there is an intimacy there. And then the breasts are sort of a next step. Um, she would have seen, and in fact, I think these breasts look very similar to the breasts in the painting by John Vanderlyn, Ariadne Asleep on the Island of Naxos, which oh. was shown in Boston in 1826. And this was a huge deal because nude portraits were not shown in America. And yes, breasts are breasts, but if if you look closely you know, she wouldn't have seen any other paintings of breasts besides this one, probably. And it does seem that this influenced her. There's even this sort of white gauze around them that's in both the painting and in her miniature. She does add, there's like a little mole or beauty mark that sort of makes clear these are hers. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's clear that giving a gift like that to Daniel Webster is erotic there's clearly some kind of physical part of this friendship between the two of them. On the other hand, we can say that she's not giving a full nude of herself, right? She's giving part of herself, which also signals she retains control of her body mm -hmm. and access to it. And she's just giving him a part. Right. But this miniature as well, like it's, <laughs> I'm not trying to compare it to, to something today, right? Like we think about like uh, partners or people sending each other, you know, kind of like naughty pictures, you know? <laughs> so it's it's like something that he would have on his phone now, or like then he could kind of keep in his pocket and just kind of keep on him at all times in case he needs to pull it out and just have a look at these fantastic breasts. Um, and they are great. And the way that she's painted them, like it's almost like they're kind of gift wrapped. So it's like, it's like intimacy on intimacy, right? So if if the eye portraits are kind of like too intimate, like what are we supposed to make of this, you know? So what I wonder is if, if she's just bold as all hell, right? Which I mean, clearly she is. Or if maybe he'd seen them before, you know? So, I mean, we don't know. I mean, I tend to think he had seen them before if she's giving him this. I, I tend to assume here that there's already a physical relationship. We can't mm -hmm. know for sure, but it's hard for me to imagine a woman being so bold in this period as to do that when there's no physical relationship already. Yeah. Um, that's just, I mean, it's already, even if there is a physical relationship, incredibly ballsy to do, yes. <laughs> but I, it's hard for me to even fathom 
that there hadn't already been a physical relationship there. They had known each other for a while at this point. So, and even, you know, when he was married, it was entirely possible that there's something going on here. Yeah. Goodness. I mean, it does seem the most likely, but wow. I mean, I don't think that I have the guts to do that now. (laughs) I mean, it is kind of like people talk about it like a sext, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yes, exactly. Or people say it's like a breast selfie and- Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even today, that would be a bold thing for a woman to do. And that's, you know, saying something. <laughs> for sure. And she's so talented as well. I mean, all, all of her paintings, but, but especially that one, you know. Um, don't worry, uh, everybody listening, I will put it on our Instagram and I will try not to get us banned. So you'll be able to see it. <laughs> it is um, at the Met and it is sometimes on display there. I don't know right now if it's on display in the American galleries. I have seen it on display before in the American galleries. And... It's a pretty famous painting within sort of art history circles. And in fact, when I first set out to do this project, before I had even started my graduate program, I met with a mentor who was an art historian. And I said, you know, I want to incorporate the art into this project on male-female friendships. How do you think I can do it? And he says, oh, well, I have an interesting miniature to tell you about. And he (laughs) gave me, he had written a paper about it in graduate school. Wow. Uh, And he gave me his paper and I was able to sort of trace the research and other people had researched it too, but only thinking about, okay, the sexual part here, but not about the friendship part that these were not people that ever got married Mm -hmm. and that she was never known as his mistress. So how do we really understand what this relationship was? Right. And of course, um, when they met and they were friends, she was kind of in her 30s. She was independent. She wasn't worried about getting married. She wasn't worried about her reputation. So she had a bit more freedom just because she was kind of apart from all that. You know, she wasn't like 18 and trying to marry up or whatever. She's an independent career woman and she can send her boobs to whoever she wants. I don't think most women would, though. No. <laughs> I, mean, I think, you know, given, like I said, that there, there's just not even nude portraits in this period. It's really remarkable it is. that she does this. And we don't know of anything else like this at the time. I mean, it is really quite unusual here. It is unusual. And can you imagine poor Sarah? Sorry to, to you know belabor the point, but you know, she paints this beautiful thing. She sends it to this guy that she likes, right? And she's thinking this is an intimate thing between the two of us. And now it's on display at the Met. Like <laughs> how do you think that she would feel if she knew, you know? That is interesting. I hadn't thought about how she'd feel about it being on display. And I I do wonder the extent to which she'd see it as an invasion of her privacy versus a display of a truly beautiful work of art that she created. And she's a very talented artist. And so to some extent, I don't know, she could could have been delighted that pieces of her art ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Of course, of course. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, she was, uh, she was pretty bold. I like to think she'd be proud you know, like, yeah, they are that good, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So uh, as you mentioned, of course, uh, Daniel Webster did eventually remarry somebody else, but he and Sarah remained friends. So what happened to their relationship after that? So we know from the letters that they're staying in touch for another few decades. And, you know, as I said before, they're getting closer in terms of those openings of the letters. So who knows if there's a physical relationship that is continuing between them during this time? Could be, could be not. And 
one interesting thing that I kept thinking about when writing this book is that there was no term at the time for friends with benefits ah. or the crasser term we would use today, fuck buddies. <laughs> that could be what this relationship was. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that she was his mistress, you know, where it was. And I'd say that, you know, what is the difference between those two? I think the question is, is this a relationship based more in friendship or more in the physical part? Mm-hmm. And my guess is that this is based more in the friendship. Um, I, they're not in the same place that, you know, he's in DC a lot of the time, although going back and forth, she's in Boston. So not really clear. Um, it is clear that she maintains her independence. And interestingly, when the descendants of Daniel Webster find this piece and put it up for auction in 1981, they described her as Webster's fiance, because I think the idea to them oh, he had this secret lover friend, must've been embarrassing even, you know, in the 1980s. And they weren't really sure what to make of it. But we do know that there were other relationships. It's really hard to see the evidence of the physical back then because people often did not record this kind of thing in writing. Mm -hmm. But there were clearly friendships between men and women that had physical elements. Same as between same-sex friendships. There you know, I don't think it is that different in every way to now in that sense, but the risks of having a physical relationship were just so much higher. Yeah, absolutely. So as a romance author, I love a good friends to lovers story. Did any of these close friendships ever become more? So certainly if you read novels from the time period, they suggested there were two possible outcomes to a friendship between a man man and woman. One is you fall in love. Mm -hmm. That's actually the less common outcome in the novels at the time. The more common outcome is that the woman uh, gets seduced and dies. And (laughs) this is in fact what happens in the famous uh, early American novel, The Coquette, where the heroine Eliza falls in love with this guy, Major Sanford. And Sanford marries somebody else. They decide on his part, mostly they're going to stay friends She's telling everybody, yeah, yeah, we're just friends now. It's fine. But Sanford is using the screen of friendship in order to seduce her. Mm -hmm. She gets pregnant, has a baby and dies alone. And so this is sort of the warning message of don't believe guys if they say, you know, I'm your friend. They're just trying to get in your pants, basically. That's, I mean, there's poems that talk about this at the time. There's advice books that say this. It's less often that they're saying, um, watch out, you might fall in love. Mm -hmm. I think they're they're more focused on the seduction risk. It's also worth noting that the line between friendship and romance, especially if we're talking about two young single people, was confusing. In the same way people are sometimes confused now about what's going on with a friend of the opposite sex if they're both straight. Um, you know, is this, you know, does this person have feelings for me? Do I have feelings for them? And part of what's challenging here is that there's no clear term for a friendship between a man and woman back then. Mm-hmm. We use the term platonic yeah. for that, a platonic friendship. Back then, platonic meant romantic, but not consummated. Ah. So you didn't want to use platonic to talk about a friendship between a man and woman. So there's no category for these relationships. No, none of the many, many etiquette manuals, letter writing manuals recognize that these relationships existed. Mm-hmm. There's no language even now to talk about friend love right. versus like love 
romantic love or love for a family member, saying you love a friend is both then and now, we don't have precise language for it. So I think that's part of why people are confused. They don't really have the words to think it through. Um, there are subtle ways where they could convey the status of the relationship, such as we talked about before the openings and closings of letters. You could call each other brother and sister. That's sort of a signal. This is a friendship. Um, novels at the time also suggest that if you say you esteem somebody, that means it's a friend and not somebody you're attracted to. Um, so that would be, I sort of thought of the word esteem as a friend zone signal. <laughs> um, it's also worth knowing that flirtation in friendships was okay. Mm-hmm. There were friends who were flirtatious. But going back to your question about people who actually do become lovers, there are a few examples um, of people who, in fact, get married. So there's this woman named Judith Sargent Murray, who, if your listeners haven't heard of her, I recommend just looking her up because she's a really interesting proto-feminist writer who is living in New England. Um, She's actually circling around some of the same ideas, perhaps even a little more radical than the fem, like sort of proto-feminist Mary Wollstonecraft in England, although they didn't know each other. So Murray is married to this guy who she pretty much says, like, I'm not in love with him. I don't think I'm ever going to fall in love with anybody. And they meet and befriend this minister named John Murray. And then her husband dies. And she says in letters, she starts having some feelings for Murray at that point, but feels like it's inappropriate and sort of tamps them down. Um, In another letter, she sort of suggests that she had been attracted to him from the beginning, but just repressed it. Mm-hmm. Um, if she hadn't repressed it, it wouldn't be appropriate for her to be telling anybody. So who knows yeah. how well she sort of kept that under wraps. But Murray finally writes her and says, look, I've been love in love with you from the beginning. Wow. And, you know, he he had felt that way all along from when he met her. And so they end up getting married. So that's sort of one example. And that's sort of controversial in their family because, you know, if you if you were knew somebody from before and then a spouse dies, question is, was something going on before? And that becomes the big issue with this woman, Peggy Eden, in Washington, D.C., um, during the first Andrew Jackson administration, late 1820s. She's actually this is not an elite woman. Her family like keeps an inn and tavern and she was married to a guy who's a sailor. So he's gone a lot. She meets this guy, John Eden. And according to her, you know, they're just friends. Her husband dies at sea. And then very quickly afterwards, she and John Eden get married. And she said, and people are like, oh, clearly you were having an affair before. Clearly this was something inappropriate. She says, no, we were just friends before. Yeah. Who knows? Again, who knows? But this is a case where we have in both of these stories, people saying we were friends and then we fell in love. Um, Outside of sort of people who were married and had to lose a spouse to get together, I want to just read a section from this incredible love letter from Benedict Arnold to Margaret or Peggy Shippen. And this is Benedict Arnold, the traitor in the American Revolution. Um, And there's going to be a new biography of Peggy Shippen coming out in the next few years um, by Charlene Boyer Lewis. So I'm excited to see that because she, Charlene argues that 
Peggy Shippen plays a bigger role in Arnold's treachery than people have really thought. But okay, apparently this is, you know, before they're, you know, young, single at this point, she has pretty much said, okay, we're friends. He writes her this love letter where he says, friendship and esteem. There's that key word, esteem, right? Like I'm not in love with you, I esteem you. <laughs> you acknowledge. Dear Peggy, suffer that heavenly bosom, which cannot know itself the cause of pain without a sympathetic pang, to expand with a sensation more soft, more tender than friendship. A union of hearts is undoubtedly necessary to happiness. But give me leave to observe that true and permanent happiness is seldom the effect of an alliance founded on a romantic passion, where fancy governs more than judgment. Friendship and esteem, founded on the merit of the object, is the most certain basis to build a lasting happiness upon. And where there is a tender and ardent passion on one side, his, and friendship and esteem on the other, her, the heart, unlike yours, must be callous to every tender sentiment if the taper of love is not lighted up at the flame. Wow. So he says, you don't have to feel passionately in love with me, even though I do with you, that that feeling of friendship you feel, if I feel passion for you, like that's enough. And in fact, this thing that he's saying that an alliance founded on a romantic passion is not going to be the basis of lasting happiness. That is something people thought at the time. You were supposed to, this companion at marriage, you're supposed to fall in love with somebody, but it's not supposed to be lust. Right. That, that is not the good basis, that friendship is actually the good basis of a marriage. Friendship and some attraction, but sort of a more measured attraction, uh, less sort of fiery. Um, and so he is clearly saying to her, like, yeah, you've said we're friends, but can you feel something more? Wow. Right. So, so friendship is a better basis for marriage because lust is something that you feel for your portrait painter. <laughs> yeah. Lust is, you know, something that's going to be temporary. Mm-hmm right? That, that's not going to be a lasting basis of a good relationship. You need to actually know each other, like each other, connect intellectually. You know, these are, I think it's not totally unlike the way we think about it now. I don't yeah. think, you know, we would say now, oh, a good marriage is based solely on whether you feel, you know, super attracted to the person, that that's the only thing you need in order to have a good marriage. Oh, no, definitely not. But uh, ideally, you'd kind of have both, you know, I don't know. If, right. Um, I think we wouldn't say lust is bad now in no. a, in in a, you know, romantic relationship, whereas back then they saw lust as dangerous because it could get out of control. You needed part of this culture of sensibility at the time is you were supposed to have strong feelings, but you were supposed to be able to control them. Interesting. I'm sure that didn't always work out. <laughs> no, no. And, and our standard of control, you know, to them part of having strong feelings was showing them bodily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if something upsetting happens, you might fall ill from it. That was considered okay. Or you might faint or, you know, your face would color, things like that, that showed you were truly feeling, but, you know, going and for instance, which there's a famous German novel where this happens, um, the sorrows of young Bercher, where you go kill yourself over it. That is just, the Americans are like, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. You need to keep yourself in line. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, there were actually were copycat suicides from 
that novel. Oh, and the Americans no. are saying, yeah, yeah, that are dressing in the same. He was wearing a particular outfit. They dressed like that. He was, you know, disappointed in love. And they're saying like, look, you're supposed to feel deeply, but this is going overboard. So friendship is altogether much safer. Yeah, it's more measured. Yeah. Interesting. So um, speaking of uh, complicated relationships, I'm sure everybody has seen Hamilton by now. Uh, and uh, I know I'm not the only one who has invested with uh, exe- uh, Alexander Hamilton's relationship with his wife's sister, Angelica. So what does the musical get right about their relationship and what did it miss? So the first thing here to note is that Angelica's already married when she meets Hamilton. Not only is she married, she eloped with this guy that she married, who does turn out to be kind of boring, but obviously there's something passionate there where she has eloped with this guy. Um, The other thing to sort of understand that I think, you know, is obviously too complex for a historical musical to get into is that siblings by marriage are seen as the same as siblings at this time, to the extent that, you know, if Alexander Hamilton and Angelica Church had anything physical between them, that would be considered incestuous. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, we think of this tradition of, oh, if a man's wife dies, he marries the sister. This is actually considered incest in a lot of places in America at this point to do that. Um On the other hand, because they are basically siblings, they can express emotion and love for each other more fully than if they were just ordinary friends. So you do see pretty fulsome emotional expression. But if you look at Angelica's letters to Hamilton, unlike the way the musical portrays it, you know, this imagine that she's thinking of his eyes as she's falling asleep, she's not flirtatious in the letters to him. She's affectionate. Um but not unusually so. It's Hamilton that's flirting with her in the letters. But he does that with a lot of women. Mm -hmm. He's super flirtatious. And he writes to her, he even admits this, I seldom write to a lady without fancying the relation of lover and mistress. Right? He's like, whenever I write a lady, I'm flirty. That's just how I am. Um, And the musical is right to show that they are very close. And even to hint at this uncertainty of whether there was ever something more physical, sexual there. There was actually gossip at the time. And John Adams referred sort of obliquely to rumors of the affair as Hamilton's incests. I mentioned it would have been incest. And that is how John Adams sort of references this. But it's not really clear. (laughs) I think the musical is right that there is some ambiguity here in the real status of that relationship and how they actually felt about each other. The musical makes it seem like they definitely had feelings for each other. I would say looking at letters, we can't know for sure. Yeah, it's not completely clear. Um, And speaking of the letters, uh, you know, especially there's comments from Angelica, like uh, wishing that her sister would share him, you know, which is like a totally normal thing you say about your brother-in-law. I mean, it does sound, you know, a little bit like there might've been something there. So what, what do you think? Do you have an opinion? Yeah, you know, I think that line is a joke because would you really <laughs> say to your sister, I want to hook up with your husband? I mean, it makes you wonder. <laughs> like, I think that's not something that she would say openly. And so I think she's joking, you know, mm. to say I care about him a lot too. Um, but, you know, and I think if you look at these letters, um, Eliza comes up in them all the time. So she's sort of part of, she's a party to this relationship. And I don't think she would sort of be cool with an affair between 
her brother, her sister and her husband sort of going on openly around her. So I think that that sort of suggests to us some element that this is a friendship. There is one period of time where Angelica and Alexander Hamilton are alone together in New York without their spouses for a few weeks in 1789. And that's when those rumors arise about them. It is possible that there was a physical relationship between them for that brief period and never again. They weren't living in the same place most of the time. So kind of hard to know. We probably will never fully know. Interesting. Gosh. So were male and female friendships more important in an era where people were possibly less likely to marry for love or less likely to in the way that we think of it now? You mentioned, of course, they marry for friendship, but not necessarily because they were in love with each other in the way that we would think of. Do you think that these friendships were more important if people were having kind of less fulfilling marriages? Actually, I think, you know, there is this standard at this time where this is actually the first period in history, I would say, you know, marriage was a economic transaction yeah. um, between two families for most of recorded history. That doesn't mean there was never love between people, but this idea that you were actually supposed to be in love with and emotionally fulfilled by your spouse starts with this idea of companion marriage in the late 18th century in, you know, England, France, the U.S., um, Western Europe. So this is actually a kind of, in a way, it's a new idea that your spouse is supposed to have any role in your emotional fulfillment. But I think the problem is we've sort of taken that ideal both then and now to say all of your emotional fulfillment should come from the spouse. Mm -hmm. And that's not really possible for one person to do. So I think yeah. that, you know, there are plenty of people who get emotional needs met at this time and now by people outside of their marriage. Sometimes it was a friend of the opposite sex. And I mean, the other thing to note here is that divorce is incredibly difficult. So if your marriage is not working out, because you might think you're in love with somebody, but you probably didn't get to spend much time alone with them and didn't know them for that long before you got married in some cases. Mm -hmm. So maybe it doesn't work out and it is somebody else where you're getting most of that emotional fulfillment. Um, the other thing is there are people who get other benefits, practical benefits from friendships with the opposite sex, even when they're married, like somebody who's a mentor to them, um, somebody who is politically influential and helps them have politically political influence, somebody who um, has somebody serving as a surrogate mother or father or brother or sister. So there's a lot of things that people could get from these friendships that they might not be getting from their marriages. Yeah. And it sounds like these friendships are really important uh, to a lot of people, you know, and, and as you mentioned in the book, of course, hugely influential in uh, in the early American Republic. So this book is so fascinating and I'm really interested to hear about uh, what you're working on now. So what's going on next? So I actually completed this book. So this book came out in 2015 and before I even finished this book, I was starting to work on the next project because while I was researching this book for my, it was initially my dissertation, I came across these two women, Eliza and Nellie Custis, who were, you know, among the many elite women who had male friends. And I had come across their letters and I was like, who are these people? 
and figured out that they were Martha Washington's granddaughters by her first marriage and that they were raised, especially Nellie, by George and Martha Washington. And I thought, I didn't know that George Washington had any family like this. I've never heard of these people. Who are these people? And I had also seen letters from his nephew who inherits Mount Vernon with the great name of Bushrod Washington. He also had a female friend um, who's, and I just thought, wait, so there's all these like next generation of people from the Washington family that I've never heard of. And I went to look up books about them and there wasn't really much. Um, And I thought, you know, this would be really interesting to understand what it's like to be the next generation of George Washington's family when this is a guy who's treated sort of like a king, but you no longer have inherited power in America. So what is it like for them? And how do they see what their political role is? And the book ended up being, you know, if this first book was about friendships, a lot of this book was about family and who counts as family. Because Eliza and Nellie Custis, I found out, um, you know, and there are two siblings, the Custis grandchildren. They are George Washington's step-grandchildren, but they are the people, not his nieces or nephews who are blood-related, that make themselves known as sort of the carriers of the Washington legacy in the 19th century. They are the ones that are famous. They have all the objects from Mount Vernon, Um, whereas, you know, when Bushrod Washington dies, it's not even in his obituary that he was related to George Washington. So these people who are not blood related to George Washington make their careers out of being his family and having had that intimate access to him. And they also happen to be just really interesting people like Eliza. Uh, she actually goes through a separation with her husband in early Washington, D.C. That is the talk of the town. You know, she's friends with Dolly Madison. She knows everybody important. So everybody in the city is talking about it. And she later is flirting with the French ambassador. She gets engaged to this French guy who's basically a con artist who's come to the U.S., And everybody's trying to tell her, like, this guy is no good. And she's like, how dare you say this about him? You know, they get engaged. She goes back to France and dies by suicide. Like, She just has this wild life. She rides around Washington, D.C., wearing a sort of tailor-made women's version of a military uniform. She's riding around on horseback in this. So these are, you know, it's a really interesting family. And I've had a lot of fun working on them. The title of the book is First Family, George Washington's Heirs and the Making of America. And it is, I know for sure it's on bookshop.org. It's on the HarperCollins website. It's on Amazon. So wherever you prefer to pre-order your books, but it won't actually be out till June. That is so exciting. We can't wait to read it. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. So we've got the pre-order information. Where can we find more of you and your work? I know you've got some great articles that I've been reading all week. Yeah, everything that I have written is up on my website, CassandraGoodHistorian.com. And so you can see links to, I think there's some links to video, videos of talks I've given on this, um, other interviews I've done, other articles I've written relating to this. And then I've moved from Twitter over to Mastodon uh, for my social media. So anybody who's on Mastodon, I'm at CGoodHistorian at HCommons.com dot social. 
I think if you just search for see good historian, you would find me that way. So I'm sharing my work there at this point too. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for the new book. That sounds so fantastic. So, I mean, again, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been such an interesting conversation. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Cassandra Good for being our guest this week. Her book is Founding Friendships, and her new book, First Families, is up for pre-order now. You can find more from Cassandra at CassandraGoodHistorian.com. I'd also like to thank our phenomenal patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at dirtysexyhistory. We'll post photos from today's show on Instagram, including, of course, Sarah Goodridge's fantastic breasts. You're welcome. We have also just joined Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History at toot.wales, so stop by and say hello. You can also find us and our six years of post archives on our website at dirtysexyhistory.com. See you guys next time. <laughs>